dark tale about scary TV scripts and becoming a ghost hunter so you can have your own show on the Sci-Fi Network. Are you going to say becoming a ghost writer? That too, actually. But uh, I'm Alex Friedman, a.k.a. the ageless vampire with an ambiguous European accent. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Nick Spooky McScarson <laughs> on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And tonight, we are sitting around a campfire with uh, flashlights under our faces to share stories about Halloween on television. So let's talk about Halloween, Nick. I actually don't celebrate Halloween in France. How about you? Do Halloween in Australia? Kind of. It's definitely not as big of a thing as it is in the US, but... I would say that, yeah, there are still kids that go around trick-or-treating and, and that kind of thing. But I would say maybe it's like 50-50, like half the people do it. But compared to here, where like everyone goes all out. All right. So before we get into how Halloween is portrayed on television, let's take a step back in time and learn the origins of the holiday itself. Nick, can you tell us what is Halloween exactly? So Halloween actually started as this kind of harvest festival celebrated by the Celts or the Celts. I never remember how to pronounce that. But ironically, they lived in Ireland, the UK, and some of northern France. So you should know about this, Alex. And they celebrated their new year on the 1st of November. So October 31st was kind of like New Year's Eve. And this day marked the end of summer and the end of the harvest. And it was the beginning of the dark, cold winter, you know, a time of year that was often associated with death and scary things in the night. So uh, (laughs) (laughs) the night is dark and full of death, apparently. Yeah. So largely the Celts were kind of pagans and, uh, you know, spiritualists and things like that. And they believed that on the night before the new year, the boundary between the worlds of the living and the dead became kind of blurred. So the night of October 31st, they celebrated this thing, which a lot of people pronounce as Samhain. I think it's technically pronounced Soen or something like that, but Mm. I'm just going to call it Samhain. And it was believed that the ghosts of the dead returned to earth and they kind of caused trouble and mischief and they damaged crops and all that kind of thing. The other part about that is that they thought that the fact that all these spirits were on earth made it easier for their, their mystics, their priests, and their druids and that kind of thing to be able to work their magic and make predictions about the future and, uh, and that kind of thing. So they would kind of have these prophecies about, are we going to have a good year ahead and uh, a good harvest and things like that? And then later on, this pagan festival of Samhain or so on was Christianized to be All Hallows' Eve, which kind of meant Holy Evening, and that eventually morphed into the word Halloween. Right. And as you mentioned, I mean, All Hallows' Eve, which has been shortened to Halloween, took place on November 1st. And if you think about Halloween as this holiday or holy day, we can kind of trace it back to, as you mentioned, pagan celebrations before the Christian era. And looking at how celebrations took form then, traditionally in Europe, Europeans regarded the night before the holy day as being linked to that holy day. In other words, holidays began on the evening before the actual day. So just Look at Jewish holidays like Rosh Hashanah, Hanukkah, Shabbat. These are holidays that begin at sundown for this very reason. And similarly, Halloween, which is the evening before All Hallows Day, or Christmas Eve, which is obviously the evening before Christmas, and Year's Eve, which is the evening before the first day of the year, were originally tied to the day of celebration, just as they are today. And in our minds, these evenings kind of anticipate the celebration, but they are actually the beginning of that holiday. So you're actually, I guess, celebrating uh, Halloween for an entire 
entire date after October 31st, technically. Oh, that's interesting. Did not know that. Obviously, there are also these traditions that kind of came along with it. And we think of them today as very capitalistic. Oh, let's go buy candy <laughs> and pay for costumes off eBay and things like that. But they did have origins with those Celtic traditions. So uh, trick-or-treating and costume originated around the 16th century, where people would go from house to house dressed as spirits, and they were kind of receiving offerings of food on the behalf of these spirits to kind of please them. And it was believed that those costumes protected you from the other spirits. And then also in the 19th century in Ireland and Scotland, people started carving fruits and gourds and turnips and vegetables and things like that into these grotesque faces to ward off spirits from their homes. Huh. I thought you were going to say that M&Ms date back from the 16th century and people would uh, trick-or-treat with M&Ms and candy. <laughs> Snickers are, yeah, an ancient <laughs> set, <laughs> like, <laughs> tradition. <laughs> Delicious. All right, moving on to television itself. Obviously, we mentioned last year a lot about Christmas specials. We did a whole Christmas episode specifically about them. But let's talk about Halloween specials. And one of the most iconic ones on TV is obviously the Charlie Brown special, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the name of it is It's the Great Pumpkin, comma, Charlie Brown. <laughs> and all of the Charlie Brown specials follow that kind of formula. Like, it's something, Charlie Brown. Uh, this was first shown back in 1966, and it plays every year just like the Christmas special we talked about in our Christmas episode. So the whole idea behind this is that Linus, the kid with the blanket, believes in this, this mystical holiday figure who's kind of like a Santa Claus or an Easter bunny, but for Halloween. And that person is called the Great Pumpkin. It's like a giant flying pumpkin. So Linus sits in this pumpkin patch every year waiting for it to show up, and it never does. So all the other kids are like, oh, you're a loser, and they go out trick-or-treating in costume while <laughs> Linus is doing that. But he convinces Sally, who has the crush on him, to stay and wait for the Great Pumpkin. Of course, the Great Pumpkin doesn't show up. At one point, there's this whole sequence with Snoopy pretending to be the fighter pilot going around in his fighter plane, and he kind of crashes into the pumpkin patch and pops up. We see this silhouette against the moon, which is a classic image from it. And Linus thinks it's the Great Pumpkin, but of course, it's revealed to just be Snoopy. So once again, he's ended the year. The Great Pumpkin didn't arrive. He's disappointed. Charlie Brown, when he's out trick-or-treating, also gets given rocks instead of candy. Wow. Uh, That's actually uh, more than I got for Halloween. <laughs> I usually get nothing because, as I mentioned, we don't do Halloween in France, so we didn't get rocks even. You know, stale baguettes or something. Sure. Uh, but there was, there was a great analysis of the episode by a writer called Jen Cheney on Vulture, and so I'm going to quote a little bit from her article. You called this a holiday cartoon where nothing good happens. Uh, she says, over and over again in The Great Pumpkin, children get their hopes up only to have them splattered all over the place like this scooped out pumpkin innards. Charlie Brown believes Lucy will hold the football so he can run up and kick it, but of course she pulls it away and he lands square on his back. That's the usual Charlie Brown trope. Charlie Brown celebrates having been invited to a Halloween party, only to be told he was invited by accident. And when he shows up, his friends use the back of his head as a sketch pad. Ooh. Which is kind of mean. That's pretty uh, rough. And like we said, while he's trick-or-treating, he never gets candy in his sack. He only gets rocks. Sally, who, out of dedication to Linus, sticks around for this great pumpkin who never comes. Even Snoopy loses that battle against the, the Red Baron in his fantasy. So Cheney says it's a 25-minute portrait of optimistic young people placing their faith in individuals and communities that consistently disappoint them. Which is pretty dark, but that's also kind of life. You know, it's pretty, it's quite subversive, especially as Charles Schultz was a Christian, as we discussed in the Christmas episode. Yeah, what an upbeat way to start this podcast. Nick. I know, just so everyone's nice and happy. Clearly. Uh, but <laughs> looking at Halloween on TV currently, I mean, I've actually found that Halloween as a setting is really most prevalent in uh, comedies or genre television. A lot of it is conducive to kind of tongue-in-cheek humor or with genre shows as a backdrop for an actual exploration of supernatural forces. 
Now, we'll talk more about what those elements practically are within the episodes on those shows, but nonetheless, it is, I think, worth noting that not many straight non-genre dramas have a Halloween episode. In fact, if you take a look at the Wikipedia list for TV Halloween specials, yes, that is a real thing, you can see for yourself that traditional American dramas and even teen dramas have maybe a tenth or a 20th of Halloween specials you would find in comedies and genre shows. So I found that kind of interesting considering, well, I guess I'm a one-hour guy, so. Yeah, it's interesting too that a lot of the ones that do have them are kids' shows. There's actually a huge list of like Nickelodeon, Disney ones that have a bunch of Halloween specials pretty consistently because obviously Halloween is more tied to to children's enjoyment of this event and of trick-or-treating. It's also bright colors, I guess, with the costumes and everything. That's true. So let's talk about the elements of these traditional Halloween episodes of TV. What makes a good Halloween episode and what are the kinds of things that we see over and over again in them? This is by no means an exhaustive list of tropes, but these are kind of recurring elements we found worth pointing out. And the first one is, unsurprisingly, costumes. And whether you go out trick-or-treating or go to an office party, your characters will probably be dressed in costumes. In fact, that directly ties to something comedies are known for, which is pop culture references. If you take a look at any TV comedy from the past 10 years, especially network TV comedies, you'll always find a Halloween episode where the characters are dressed as references to contemporary pop culture. For example, we've got Tom from Parks and Rec who dressed as T-Pain, or Kevin from The Office dressed as Mr. Incredibles from The Incredibles. Uh, that is a sight to behold. Which is kind of funny because it can serve to date those episodes if it is a contemporary pop culture thing that's not like a classic movie like Einstein or something. If it's like whatever else was in the zeitgeist at the time and you're like oh yeah i'll talk about the happy ending Halloween episode later but in that very episode they do shine a lantern on one of the characters being dressed as austin powers even though it was made in the 2010s so clearly they did a costume but that was done on purpose now the next halloween trope is supernatural occurrences whether characters are experimenting with the occult or supernatural forces are legitimately being unleashed within that world, a lot of Halloween specials directly deal with some otherworldly element thrown into the narrative. Yeah, you've got all that kind of stuff like seances and ghosts and curses, but one of the classic ones is a zombie outbreak. So South Park did one of these in an episode called Pink Eye, where some <laughs> some Worcestershire sauce was mixed with embalming fluid and it turned Kenny into a zombie. And then he bit some people and it spread throughout the town, but everyone was just writing it off believing it was an epidemic of pink eye <laughs> they also did the classic thriller homage to the michael jackson video clip where he's a zombie in the red jacket doing the dance and they have to do that trope of we got to kill the lead zombie like kill the head vampire kind of thing <laughs> but one of the great ones was a community episode called epidemiology this is where greendale is having their annual halloween party as we said office parties school parties things like that tend to be very common in halloween specials but to cut down on costs dean pelton ordered these old army surplus meals to cater for the party which were contaminated and they lead to a rabies outbreak. But it appears in the episode that everyone who is eating this stuff is being turned into zombies and they're all biting each other and they're they're spreading this disease and we don't find that until later that it was rabies. So they play off of all those classic zombie tropes. Community is by far one of the best shows at satirizing and taking apart these classic tropes. And it was kind of one of the episodes that really surprised me because it's like, oh my God, are these characters actually dying? Like, how do you get back from this? They had done other episodes with paintball and things like that where they're in these elaborate fantasy worlds but this seemed like these these things were actually happening it's hard to do a hard reset on a live action show yeah exactly right and then everyone's going down one by one you're like how are they going to get them out of this so they just kind of like write this off as like a non-continuity episode or something (laughs) but 
ultimately what happens is they find out they need to lower down the thermostat and cool everyone off so that they calm down. And then the army comes in because they found out about these meals and they disinfect the place. And then they do this like men in black thing where they wipe everyone's <laughs> memories, which is obviously a little bit of a heightened reality there. Are you telling me this doesn't happen to uh, community colleges around the world? Oh, no, I'm pretty sure it has. But no one would remember. So yeah. like you said, with the costumes, we had some good ones in this. Pierce was Captain Kirk. Jeff was <laughs> David Beckham. <laughs> Dean Pelton was Lady Gaga. <laughs> and I think Troy was just shirtless with a bib that said Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> the irony is that's exactly how we dress right now, Nick, with the bib that says Dracula for some reason. Well, I thought the viewers would appreciate it. And I think what's funny is that this is not Halloween right now. You just <laughs> dressed like this on a noble October day. Look, it's my washing day. I didn't have anything <laughs> left aside from my Dracula bib. So Now moving on to the next trope, and that is the idea of telling scary stories or the practical jokes trope. And that is the kinds of circumstances that feature in Halloween movies where the show is being self-aware about people all alone in a house and the power goes out and they tell scary stories, but then weird noises are coming from outside and then these noises actually really happen. It's kind of like uh, Cabin in the Woods, but the TV show version, right? Yeah, this is absolutely another classic trope. One of the examples of it is uh, Dawson's Creek, actually. <laughs> not what you would think of for your traditional Halloween uh, series, but in season one, there's an episode called The Scare and they're in Dawson's house. I think in honor of Friday the 13th, Dawson is playing these practical jokes against everyone because he's a film buff. And while he's planning a seance and the gang are kind of like looking out for ghosts. And then they're spooked by these reports that come in on the TV of a serial killer on the loose, which is another like movie trope <laughs> heading towards Cape Side. And then they bring a couple of guests into the house. And one of them happens to be this woman that like Pacey's brought along as a date who's actually kind of like crazy and turns out she was running away from her psychotic boyfriend. And so this boyfriend shows up and it's like, yeah, they, they really just interlink all those those ridiculous tropes coming together. And Is they, that boyfriend actually psychotic? I don't remember. It Is well it tied enough, to that serial killer on the loose? Basically, story? yeah, I think that, that they worked that into it. But there was a, they did another one of that in season five where they were just they went and watched a horror movie and they were like, oh, that wasn't very good. Let's tell our own stories. And they sat around in a corner and everyone like each character tells one story and you kind of like cut away into that thing. And, you know, it's another really classic thing that they do. The Simpsons has done a bunch of those, those clip show scary stories too. That almost sounds like the Nightmare episode of Buffy, except that was in a Halloween episode, but mm -hmm. interesting. Uh, and tied to that is the idea of legends and prophecies and superstitions, right? Yeah, there's that whole thing of like tonight, 100 years ago on this day, someone was murdered here and now we're going to do this. One of the examples that I found of this was in Supernatural. There's an episode, funnily enough, called It's the Great Pumpkin, Sam Winchester. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder is, what's the reference to. I don't know. So Sam and Dean Winchester show up to this town to investigate someone who died from swallowing razor blades in candy, which is one of those urban legends of things that happen to kids on Halloween. And then later on, they find someone else has gotten boiled alive while they were bobbing for apples. And they discover it's ultimately actually this spell, which is calling for three blood sacrifices over three days, the last before midnight on the final day of the final harvest, as we said before about this whole Samhain festival. So it turns out it's a witch trying to summon a demon called Samhain on Halloween. Like we said, tying back to that Celtic day on the calendar, the veil between the living and the dead being the thinnest. And then once this demon returns, he's going to raise other things up from hell and a bloodbath, and it's going to break one of the the 66 seals that lead to the apocalypse, which is a big, long-running supernatural storyline. But again, they're taking these kind of tropes and these urban legends of Halloween and then using them in an actual genre drama TV show in a kind of like, here's the true story of this way, or here's what happens when a witch uses this in a quote-unquote real life was scenario. it kind of a straight version of that story? Because I know that Supernatural is really well known for its uh, meta humor and kind of self-referential concepts. 
there was definitely some humor to it. Like they have scenes of Sam and Dean like picking out on candy and things like that. But this one was played relatively straight in terms of we're trying to do a ritual to release this demon. Whereas there are, have been a number of other episodes with like trickster gods and fairies and, and things where they're being self-referential. But this was more just taking the Halloween tropes and using them for its horror storytelling. And speaking of supernatural forces or supernatural elements, another Halloween trope or another recurring concept is this idea of evil twins or clones or parallel universes on the Hallow's Eve. Yeah, we've seen this in shows even like, doesn't Star Trek have an evil Spock? The, the mirror goatee, universe. Yeah. The mirror universe. Well, I mean, like the, the mirror universe has very little to do with Halloween. No, <laughs> I'm not saying it's a Halloween episode, sure. but we're familiar with that concept from a number of shows. And so South Park kind of satirizes that in this episode called Spooky Fish. Stan gets this goldfish. His aunt comes to town and gifts him this goldfish. He puts it in his room. And he's kind of freaked out by it. And when he wakes up, there's like a dead person next to the goldfish bowl. And he's like, oh my God, this is like an evil goldfish. And no one believes him. At the same time, Cartman has been acting really strange. He's actually been like really nice to everyone and being a good person for once. And they're like, wow. there's something going wrong here. So they discovered that this fish and Cartman are from a parallel universe. And this Cartman is kind of like the evil twin, but he's actually good because Cartman is the evil one. <laughs> so they've subverted that trope and flipped it around. And then ultimately the evil Stan and evil Kyle from the other universe show up to take good Cartman back. And another kind of fun thing about this episode is that they announced it was going to be shown in Spooky Vision. And what Spooky Vision turned out to be was literally a little banner around the edges of the screen that said Spooky Vision and had Barbara Streisand's <laughs> head in each corner. <laughs> Nightmares for life. Wait, so did this switch the Cartmans? Is our Cartman the one from the evil universe? I think it just happened to be that in this universe, Cartman was the more evil one or whatever. I don't think there was like a switch to both trope hmm. or anything like that. I mean, we should have known because he has a goatee. So much like evil Spock, uh, we should have known that Cartman was evil all along. cover the common elements that you find in Halloween episodes, we're going to talk a little bit about delving deeper into the themes and what these Halloween episodes are actually exploring and some of our favorite examples of those. Well, I found that Halloween episodes, especially in drama and genre shows, often question the notion of identity and alter egos. And that is usually tied to the visual metaphor of characters wearing costumes. And none is more representative of that idea than the first Halloween-themed episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, entitled... Halloween. And in the world of Buffy, Halloween is actually a holiday for the supernatural. Vampires and other creatures of the night take the day off. That's funny. But that doesn't mean that the Scooby gang isn't getting into trouble because in this episode, thanks to an enemy from Giles' past coming back in town, everyone in Sunnydale is magically transformed into the personas that their costumes represent. So Xander is dressed as an army man and literally becomes an army guy. Willow literally becomes a ghost and Buffy literally becomes an old-timey damsel in distress. And Buffy here obviously is completely useless, and it's up to the others to save the day. Now, obviously, the formula of the show here is upended by an inversion of roles where Alexander the sidekick becomes the hero to the other characters. But, as mentioned, the episode is really about identity, and specifically, I want to talk about Willow overcoming being this very shy, meek girl. Now, at the beginning of this episode, Willow gets this ghost costume, which is essentially just a giant white sheet that she can hide under. Now, Buffy convinces Willow to wear a black miniskirt and long sleeve crop shirt, which is described in the script as a hot rocker chick look. Now, Willow ends up covering herself with the ghost costume and going outside still hiding under the sheet. However, when people start becoming their costumes, Willow becomes a real ghost, which 
means she becomes herself dressed in that skimpy outfit, except, you know, transparent and everything. So she's forced to confront her own unease because she literally cannot hide under a sheet anymore. Now, if you think about it, it's very common for people to kind of unleash on Halloween and go out of their comfort zone specifically because they have a mask or a costume they can hide behind. But here we have the opposite come true for Willow, and that is what I mean by the exploration of identity and alter egos. Characters will often be confronted by who they are or who they are not. And in fact, one of the symbols used in that Buffy episode is the two-faced statue of Yanis. And in ancient Roman mythology, Yanis was the literal two-faced god of beginnings and endings. In fact, the month of January is named after him. And so that means that even in the symbolism within that Halloween episode of Buffy, you can see that theme of dual identity being explored. That's really cool. Was Giles dressed as anything? I don't know if it's in this very episode, but Giles, at some point in one of the Halloween episodes, is dressed in like a sombrero and a Dia de los Muertos kind of outfit. And it's in dire contrast with literally all the other characters being this kind of pop culture reference heavy costume. Nice. I think looking at that Buffy episode, it really speaks to a great storytelling technique that you can use as a writer and that you can look to find your characters and like, what is the worst possible situation I could put these people in? It's the exact opposite of where they want to be or what they want to be doing. And then watching the conflict and the drama and the interesting stuff unfold from just that juxtaposition of those two elements. Again, it boils down to character, which is the point of TV, really. And tying to that, in fact, the first and only Halloween episode in the spinoff, Angel, explores kind of similar themes. Now, the centerpiece of that Halloween episode of Angel is an office party at Wolfram and Hart, which is this interdimensional law firm that the Angel team takes over in the last season of the show. Spoiler alert. The party is attended by big white demons that Angel must cater to, but everything kind of goes haywire when Lauren gains the ability to make people do whatever he says, except nobody, including himself, realizes that. So, for example, he tells Angel and a co-worker to get a room, which leads them to engage in non-stop sex in his office. And then he jokes that Gunn should mark his territory, which makes him pee around the office. Now, this episode isn't about identity per se, and it's definitely a humorous episode, but it is still representative of the overarching theme of the season. And again, this alter ego concept of who do you really become when you're forced to be in the corporate world. And as a side note, that's why I think really Angel is more the adult show compared to Buffy, because Buffy is all about high school, but Angel is all about that adult work environment. It's almost like a liar, liar type trope there where, you know, you can't tell a lie, but this is everything that you tell someone to do, they have to say, but you know, they're both lawyers and their words are powerful and important and they're going to affect the world around them in, in a way they may not realize. Now, I wish that Jim Carrey would show up in that, in that show <laughs> as, a, as a demon. That would be fun. I'm sure there must be some other examples too of characters having to really dive deep into themselves and confront whatever is inside them in these Halloween type episodes, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of my other favorite Buffy, I just love Buffy, so I'm just going to continue with Buffy, the, the Vampire Slayer. The fourth season of the show had this episode called Fear Itself. And the Scooby gang is now in college and heading to this haunted house-themed fret party. And there's a summoning portal that is accidentally activated by a drop of blood and everyone's worst fears come to life. And there's even a reference to the last Halloween episode. I mean, Xander dresses up like James Bond just in case he's transformed again because he wants to be this cool, suave agent. That doesn't really pertain to the story of this episode, but anyway. It's a fun callback. Uh, exactly. And now the haunted house itself is very creepy. You have fake spiders becoming real. Doors and windows disappear, leaving people trapped in walls. It's very frightening. But the real meat of the episode, as you were asking me about, Nick, is this idea of discovering the deepest fears and insecurities of each 
member of the group. And those manifest fears actually reveal character. Buffy fears that being the Slayer means having to be alone, so she loses everyone around the house, literally. Xandra feels left out of the college crowd, so he becomes invisible. Oz is afraid of being a werewolf and turning into one around Willow, so he does. And the framing of a haunted house on Halloween once again kind of pertains directly to the most important part of the show, which as we've said, is the characters themselves. Also, I gotta mention the payoff at the end of the episode is kind of amazing, with this fear demon being finally summoned and turning out to be this very, very tiny demon. Giles had not realized the diagram in his demon book had a caption translating to actual size. That's amazing. There's a great episode of American Horror Story season one when it was still good. Uh, <laughs> they did a two-parter Halloween thing. And in Halloween part two, there's this interesting scene where Violet and Tate go on this date to the beach on Halloween. And they're confronted by a group of kids who are dressed up with all these gory injuries. Um, and they confront Tate. They seem to be familiar with him. And they're really angry at them. And he doesn't recognize them. They accuse him of having hidden out for years in mommy's little safe house. And then they kind of run off back home. And when they get there, the kids are there again waiting on the porch. And they harass them. And they're taunting Violet. Tate tries to protect her by leading them away on a chase. But ultimately, what we discover later is he doesn't want Violet to find out why they're so angry with Tate. And it's because Tate was a school shooter who actually killed all of these kids. And they're actually ghosts. They are not dressed up at all for Halloween. And so it seems almost like these are a literal manifestation of his past and his demons and his evil deeds and past actions that he is being forced to confront in front of you know other people and account for those. Man, that's pretty dark. I mean, American Horror Story went to some dark, dark places mm-hmm. uh, throughout the years. And funnily, they actually do have a Halloween episode every season on their American oh, really? Horror Story. Yeah. Is it actually themed Halloween or is it just I think it just happening? happens to like Halloween as a day is is in the oh, episode. It doesn't, yeah. I wonder what's gonna be the cult version of Halloween. Oh god, who knows? Uh, I gave up on that. <laughs> hard pass. Um, anyway, moving on to something a little bit more upbeat, Futurama, which is a show we both love. And there's this Halloween, I think the only Halloween episode in the entire series, The Honking, also kind of explores those inner demons and similar fears. And the episode starts with a very common horror premise. As part of his late uncle's last will, Bender must spend the night in his family's haunted castle near Thermostat, the capital of the Robo-Hungarian Empire, <laughs> in order to inherit I'm very familiar with Thermostat because that's where I got my ambiguous European accent. Uh, (laughs) Are you a robo-Hungarian? Well, I'm not going to admit it publicly on this podcast. (laughs) Now, Bender ends up being run over by this mysterious non-hover car, and it turns out he was run over by a war car, which is the robotic equivalent of a werewolf. And thus, Bender became one himself, and he is cursed to keep running people over and over again and eventually killing his best friend. And the entire episode really explores not just the inner fear, but the relationship between Fry and Bender as best friends, because I think at some point, Bender as this robocar ends up targeting Leela, and Fry feels really betrayed because... Bender, you should be trying to kill me. I'm your best friend. What are you doing? That's great. And I think it's like a funny call out to Stephen King's Christine as well, Mm -hmm. the car trying to kill people, but incorporating the uh, the whole werewolf trope with it as well. It's really (laughs) funny. One Halloween episode that has always stuck out in my mind, it's from a comedy show, but it's not funny at all. It's it's very dramatic and interesting. It's a a Louie episode called Halloween. And this is when it was still doing the kind of like first half story, second half story. So in the first half of it, Louie takes his daughters out trick-or-treating in New York. And they kind of run into these two dudes who are dressed up. And these guys are actually quite scary, intimidating people. Like Louie thinks they're messing around, but then they're actually serious. And they're kind of like intimidating and threatening his daughters. And he doesn't really know what to do in this 
situation. He's kind of paralyzed by his fear. But ultimately, his daughters stand up to these two guys because they just think that they're bullies and they are standing up to these monsters and finding that kind of like strength in themselves. And ultimately, what that does is gives Louis the strength that, you know, if my daughters can be brave in this situation, so can I. And so he wields this thing and threatens the guys and smashes this window and sets off an alarm. And they go off running because the police are coming. And so they're like, oh, dad, you saved us. But ultimately, it was his daughters that kind of saved him and gave him that inspiration. So it was a really lovely wow. piece, but it was Halloween scary in a very real world way. Right. Oh my, this could actually happen to people. It's kind of the opposite of the other episodes where this is more of a metaphor of monsters in the real world more so than literal monsters appearing exactly. uh, on your doorstep. That's uh, pretty messed up. Now, I did want to mention one of my favorite Halloween episodes also comes from one of my favorite comedies, and that is Happy Endings. I just love happy endings. And it's actually the second season episode, Spooky Endings. <laughs> uh, and for me, the second season of Happy Endings is really when the show started hitting its stride. And this episode delivers with each of the three main couples of the show. On one hand, you have the ex-lovers Alex and Dave trying and failing to hit on other people at a Halloween warehouse party. Alex is wearing a Marilyn Monroe dress and Dave is wearing this aforementioned Austin Powers costume straight out of the 90s. On the other hand, you have Penny and Max paired up as a mother and her baby in a Bjorn in the greatest non-couple couple costume ever. And on the third mutant hand, because I, I guess we have three hands now, <laughs> you have Brad and uh, Jane going into a candy war with the neighborhood kids while dressed not just in street clothes, but also uh, bacon. And Happy Endings, in my mind, has an amazing ensemble cast. And you really see them deliver in this episode, including this fantastic exchange between Max and Brad in the cold open where Max goes, Halloween is the Super Bowl of drinking. Brad responds, isn't the Super Bowl the Super Bowl of drinking? And Max says, no, the Super Bowl is the Halloween of football. <laughs> uh, I mean, honestly, I just kind of wanted to bring out this episode in Happy Endings because uh, I really want a new season. And I'll be linking the script for this particular episode in the show notes as it is fantastic. All right, to close things out, we got to talk about the most iconic piece of Halloween TV imagery on television, and that is The Simpsons Treehouse of Horror. Yeah, there's no way we were getting out of this episode with me in it without this coming up. <laughs> I've got a game for you. Do you want to play a game? All right, let's do it. I'm Jigsaw in this, in this version. I'm cosplaying as a Jigsaw. As a side note, what's the difference between cosplaying and just wearing a costume? I think that cosplaying is more of an expression of fandom. Whereas just wearing a costume is kind of dressing up for the hell of it. Interesting. Well, anyway, I did want to play a little uh, treehouse trivia with you. And the way this game works is going to be pretty simple. I'm going to read a log line or a basic conceit of uh, one of the segments, many segments of Treehouse of Horror. And you got to name me the actual punny, punny name of that segment. All right. I'm going to embarrass myself. Are you sure. ready? Let's see. All right. What was the name of the segment where... Homer buys a transporter that Bart uses to switch bodies with a housefly. Fly versus fly. Ding, ding. That's one point. Which is a call out to Spy versus Spy, the cartoon. Okay, next up. What is the name of the segment where Homer finds himself trapped in a three-dimensional world? Homer cubed. It's got the little three above the Homer. <sighs> dang it. <laughs> all, right, all right, fine. I'll definitely get you with this one. What is the segment where Marge reveals that Maggie is the product of a one-night stand with the alien Kang? Yeah, I don't know this one. I know the episode. I don't know the name. Starship Poopers. <laughs> Amazing. It's a very, very uh, nice name, I guess. <laughs> what about the one where Homer buys Bart an evil talking Krusty doll? No, I don't, I don't have it. Pass. 
Yeah. Uh, the name was Clown Without Pity. Yeah, I wouldn't have got that. It's one of my favorite all-time segments with the guy in the, the cursed item shop or whatever. He's like, yes, you can have it, but it is cursed. That's bad, but it comes with a free froget. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> the froget contains sodium benzoate. That's bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that they called it froger there, and uh, now it's just froyo, I think. Yeah. Um, all right, next up. The episode or the segment where Principal Skinner begins using students in detention as cafeteria food. Nightmare cafeteria? Ding, ding, ding. That's uh, what? Three out of uh, how? I'm, not, I'm really not keeping track. Let's be I think honest. It's like three out of five. Something like that. All right. Finally, the segment where an ionic storm brings Springfield's oversized advertisements and billboards to life and they begin attacking the town. Attack of the 50 foot eyesores. Ding, ding, ding. We have a winner. All right. That's All not right. bad. I think that's I pretty good. Four out of six. The majority, yeah. Ain't bad. What about the one that's uh, parodying uh, Nightmare at 20,000 feet? It's something at five and a half feet. Terror. Terror at five yeah. and a half feet. Wow. You knew the number and everything. Wow, that's very <laughs> impressive. That's where the gremlin's on the side of the bus, right? Or the, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the plane, yeah. Well, actually, the bus, the original was the plane. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on. Let me ask you, Nick, talked about it now for a couple of minutes. What is your favorite Treehouse of Horror segment? You know, I had to really think long and hard about this, but I'm going to say The Raven, just because it was the the final segment of the first Treehouse of Horror in season two. They didn't have one in season one. And it's essentially just a straight retelling of Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven, uh, voiced by James Earl Jones, of all people. <laughs> but then what they do with the animation and with what Homer's reactions are on top of that voiceover is really fun. Bart is obviously the Raven, you know, annoying Homer as he's like tearing his hair out. And he's like the lost Lenore is Marge. And it's just incredible. It just always stuck with me as a kid to the point where I went out and memorized the whole poem from the Raven. I don't know if I remember most of it now. I can try putting you on the spot right now. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary over some quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping as of someone gently rapping, rapping on my chamber door. To some visitor I muttered, rapping on my chamber door, only this and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember it was in the bleak December as every separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Vainly I had sought to borrow from my books a cease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore. Uh, something... Yeah, I kind of lost it from there, but... As Homer would say, nerd. <laughs> yes, but that, I think that that would be my favorite one. Yeah, my favorite one, I want to say one of my favorite ones is the Homer Cube one, because just the sheer ridiculousness of seeing him in 3D, I thought that was very impressive at the time, obviously. Oh, yeah, but, absolutely. It was like uh, a huge thing at the time for, like, oh my God, it's going to be 3D on our TVs. Now it's a given. The whole episode I thought was really good. I mean, you mentioned the attack of the 50-foot eyesore, but the it's not Nightmare Cafeteria. It's the Nightmare on uh, Evergreen Terrace. Oh, yeah. Uh, where, where Willie's coming back in people's dreams. Exactly. That's so good. That yeah, I think really if I had to choose like a second favorite, it's probably The Shinning. The Shinning. <laughs> <laughs> where Homer ends up out at this old hotel with his family and he goes crazy and and like Mo is the, the ghost bartender and he's like uh, hey Homer me and some of the ghouls think you haven't been doing a good enough job killing your family <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you mentioned it uh, in an episode where we talked about pop culture references or something mm-hmm. and then that is how you discovered yeah I saw the Simpsons episode before I saw The Shining wow which is hilarious you know like hmm, usually the blood gets off on the second floor but uh, another great like Shining parody was the South Park episode, the Nightmare on FaceTime. 
uh, <laughs> which is a reference to the other half of the episode where Stan is being tormented or Skype or something or, or FaceTime, obviously, on an iPad. But the, the, the really good part of it was Stan's dad, Randy, buys this franchise of a blockbuster. This episode was back in 2012 when it was still kind of... blockbusters were still a thing. Yeah, still a thing, but, you know, on their way out because Redbox and streaming was kind of killing video rentals. But he buys this franchise of a blockbuster for like $10,000 on the outskirts of town. He, he brings his wife and daughter there and it kind of becomes like the shining with these ghosts of former blockbuster employees keep popping up and like you know former customers and they're telling him after like kill his wife because he doesn't support him running this blockbuster so he ends up like stalking around the aisles of the store through like the dvds and whatever trying to find them <laughs> i love the shining and ultimately at the end he ends up outside frozen in the snow and i think stan puts an ipad with a streaming movie in his hand or something as a, a little ironic twist at the end Wow, that's pretty dark. <laughs> I was just thinking of the, what is it, the Ned Zone or something? The one where uh, Ned, it's kind of like the Stephen King's The Dead Zone episode oh, yeah. where he has like mm-hmm. visions of people mm-hmm. to kill. Oh, I also really love Citizen Kang. <laughs> yes, Citizen <laughs> it, Kang. It, it becomes infinitely quotable every time there's an election anywhere. <laughs> Sadly. <laughs> you have to vote for one of us. It's a two-party system. What if I vote for a third party and throw your vote away? <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> okay, here's a trivia question. Mm-hmm. Did Kang get elected in that episode? Yes, because don't believe me, I voted for Kodos. <laughs> for the most part of the episode, Kang disguised himself as Bob Dole, and Kodos disguised himself as Bob Clinton. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess they're walking down the street holding hands, and they're like, uh, Sir, this appears bad. <laughs> You're holding hands <laughs> with your opponent. <laughs> so, in this version, I guess Bob Dole got elected president because Kang got elected president. I guess so. Makes you think. Hmm. <laughs> have any spooky resources for our listeners Ooh, well i mean here's uh, something spooky a waste of time that is kind of useful uh, someone on the horror subreddit compiled this enormous list of hundreds and hundreds literally upwards of 400 episodes of halloween tv shows across the years including in the spreadsheet a short description from each episode and whether or not they're available on netflix and dvd and you'll be able to feast your eyes on all that as i will be linking it in the show notes it's a google spreadsheet yeah, i mean like you said i think wasting your time is pretty scary given you know if you think about the limited time we have here on earth and uh, oh boy <laughs> i recently <laughs> never installed, get that time uh, back I, li- I recently installed this chrome extension that calculates when you're gonna die and this, this oh, no. of number of years re- oh god i don't <laughs> want depressing. that i don't want that <laughs> For my resource, it's not particularly TV writing related, but if you are perhaps writing a Halloween episode or something, you should be aware of this, but it's more just a general life. I think it's important for people to think about cultural appropriation and racism when it comes to Halloween costumes. There is a good article on a website called Everyday Feminism. It's called, Is Your Halloween Costume Racist? And there were some really good points there that may not have occurred to you before you, you decide to dress up as something, especially if you're doing it as a joke or a laugh. Like, am I dressing up as someone's culture because I think it's funny? You know, things like that. So just like read about it, think about it make good decisions yeah try not to uh, dress up as a dude playing a dude doing some other dude or whatever that tropic thunder quote is <laughs> oh yes yeah no blackface no like nothing like that just be smart on that note thanks everyone for taking the time to tune in and listen you can get all the show notes for this spooky episode at paperteam.co slash 64 and if you want to leave us a spooky review you can do that at paperteam.co slash itunes Something like, uh, I was so scared because it was so good. Uh, <laughs> out of context. <laughs> As always, I'm on Twitter, at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, scary stories you want to share about this industry, and there are a lot of them, you it's can send them. a lot coming them. out right now. 
can send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week, Nick? Next week, we're going to be looking at adaptation, not the Charlie Kaufman movie, but rather <laughs> how to approach adapting novels and other source material to TV. Including uh, period and historical pieces. So we'll see you next week. And we'll see you then.